women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants to hear your voice. Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about change and the women who drive it forward, before, during, and after their time here on the Princeton campus. My name is Margaret Koval, and my guest today is Emily Mann. Emily is an award-winning playwright who's been the artistic director of our neighboring McCarter Theater for 30 years, and as of this morning, we can officially say she's a legend. It was just announced that Emily will be introduced into the Theater Hall of Fame this year, which is a fitting honor for someone who's dedicated her career to bringing new voices to the stage, particularly women and people of color. Under Emily's stewardship, McCarter won the prestigious Tony Award for Outstanding Regional Theater, and Emily herself was twice nominated for Tony Awards as a playwright and director. Her most recent play is Gloria, A Life, which is running now at McCarter Theater. But sadly for us, Emily herself will retire from McCarter at the end of the season. So, Emily, thank you very, very much for taking time to talk to us. Thank you, Margaret. It's really a pleasure to be here. I wanted to start with Gloria. I think there's an interesting story in how that play came to be, actually. So I wonder if you could just tell it to us from the beginning. Yes. Well, for many women of my generation, Gloria Steinem was an icon. And I know when I speak to many of my peers, many of us feel that we would not be living the lives we're living without her. Yeah. So when I had the great good fortune of meeting her when my play Having Our Say was on Broadway and we were honoring great women, um, I met her backstage. She introduced me to the woman she was speaking to, Anita Hill. (laughs) And um, she never forgot the night, nor me, nor the play. Mm -hmm. So... Um, When a good friend of hers, Kathy Najimi, asked her and really pushed her into having a play about her performed by her. Uh That's what I wanted to get at. Yeah. Originally, she was going to be the She was going to play herself. Uh, The person that they thought of to do this was me. So I am very honored that Gloria herself called me to ask me to do this. Yeah. Uh, In fact, I was walking across campus when I got got the (laughs) cell phone call and said, Emily, Hi, this is Gloria Steinem. It's like you probably didn't even need to hear her to say her <laughs> like, name because oh that voice my is God, so familiar. That voice. <laughs> um, and it took me literally a tenth of a second to say mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. So that's how it began. And it began as a one-woman play with her playing herself, and it was a commission from Lincoln Center Theater mm-hmm. in New York. And then we had a workshop. Mm-hmm. She played herself and said she would rather kill herself than play herself. <laughs> and she suddenly, you know, her... her uh, respect for actors absolutely soared, yeah. and her ability, she felt, to do this plummeted. And so she said, I can't. But we decided we didn't want it to die. The play was really working. And then Diane Paulus, who's the artistic director of ART mm-hmm. at Harvard, mm-hmm. um, and a great colleague of mine, she came on as director and um, said, well, Emily, you know, it's a great play for Um, Gloria, but without her, it shouldn't stay a one-woman play. And Mm -hmm. I agreed with her. Mm -hmm. So we decided to make it an ensemble piece, went back into a workshop. And then um, Andre Bishop, the artistic director of Lincoln Center, said, well, I love it. Let's do it as a as a kind of reader's theater mm-hmm. on Monday nights, on mm-hmm. dark nights at Lincoln Center, the way John Lithgow does his yeah. one-man show and things like that. And Diane said, no, it should be a full production. So then Daryl said, well, if there's no room at Lincoln Center, take it to my theater, and the rest is history. Yeah, it yeah. became 
you know, one of the long-running uh, off-Broadway shows yeah, last season. Yeah, and, you know, very successful and much loved. But yeah. just to kind of flesh out for the listeners what it looks like, mm-hmm. you've got a, a, an ensemble cast of, I believe it's six other actors. Right, seven um, women total. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's exciting. It, very exciting. And they change they change characters throughout and they change genders throughout, which is Absolutely. also kind of striking. Yes. Indeed. I wonder what thought went behind that. Did you did you talk long and hard about the change? We did talk long mm-hmm. and hard about that because there were male characters as well as female characters and we, you know, have Gloria speaking directly to the audience and it is um, theater in the round. The fourth mm-hmm. wall is gone. Um, but when we started to audition, we found that the men who came to audition for what seemed to be tiny roles were the bottom of the heap. Uh-huh. And the women who came in as ensemble members um, to audition wanted desperately to be part of this. So the level was very high. Yeah. So we just, Diane and I looked at each other and we should ask them to read some of the men's parts. And then they were playing the men better than the men were. And boy, did they do a great job on, on the men. They? I thought it was really, really interesting. Yeah. And, 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 and that kind of fluidity added a whole other layer of thought to the play, exactly. I think. Exactly. And when you look at these men through the gaze of women, mm-hmm. through the lens of women, the, if you the will. The female gaze. The female gaze. <laughs> it becomes much more interesting. And as you say, it adds another layer. It really does. But another thing, another character in the play, I think, is the projection screen, which yes. is really quite interesting. Again, how did that come about? And that and for was the list- always from the beginning, um, even with the one-woman show that I first wrote. Actually, mm-hmm. it's the same bones as what I originally wrote. Mm-hmm. It's almost exactly the same stories. And I wanted the media part of it because that was so much part of the story. Yeah. Um, so I often use video, and then I also like to use live video. Yeah. Uh, and I did that with Execution of Justice on Broadway. I think we may have been one of the first to ever use a live feed. Um, But I love what you can do in the theater theatrically with... Um, film and video. Yeah, so. I mean, we we saw the actress Gloria yes. kind of superimposed on the projection screen with archival footage of the yes, times, and indeed. it was it was very um, effective and, oh, and compelling. I really thank you. Really yeah, it. we're still doing that here. Definitely. Yeah. There's in in some ways the I, I was struck that the play. Um, was non-traditional in the sense that it's it's not a um, we don't see a lot of character development internal character development right. of our main character and, and we don't see a lot of tension because any of us who lived through it know how it turns out kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what we have is a more of a documentary style. Absolutely. And this is of course something that you're famous for. But I wonder yeah. if you can just speak to that a little bit and why you wanted to use that with Gloria. Whether you weighed different ways of approaching her history or whether you knew I, right away it had to be a documentary. I style. did weigh different ways of doing it, but when I knew it was going to be live and where Gloria comes alive is when she speaks to large groups of people. Um, and when she Uh, leads what she calls talking circles, Mm -hmm. Uh, it seemed to me that that is something that can only happen in the theater. And she has often said the only way that true empathy is built and social justice movements are uh, are organized is through a talking circle. Mm -hmm. So I thought, what would it be like to go to the next level in the theater? Because if she says you can only have empathy with... um, when you're in the same room with all five senses, that's when the hormone oxytocin gets to flood your system, just like what happens when you bond with another human being. That's the hormone that is released, yeah. empathy bond. Um, that's 
what the theater does. Yeah. So let's go one step further and get the audience involved in the play. And then it becomes a kind of performance art. Yeah. And so uh, because I am, you know, a dramatist, I, I, I direct and produce and, and, and I love all different forms of theater. It still has classic theater structure buried under it. So yeah. I can tell you, you know, it's in three movements right. you know there's a beginning middle and end there's a so-called climax although as we know with a lot of women's work there are multiple climaxes <laughs> <laughs> and so you know I'm using both feminist theory as well as the archetypal um, male structure to make it work yeah. so it's all buried under that and as my great pal Mary McDonald who's playing Gloria right now has said oh my god it's so sneaky it doesn't operate the way most plays operate and yet underneath it you're completely supported as the actor because the structure, the structure is remains there, there even though a lot of people can't see it well you what what you say brought so many questions to my mind I hope I can remember to, to go through them one by one but one of them is I, uh, I wanted to underscore what you said about the talking circle the second act of the play literally is a talking circle that's right with the audience which that's is right. really innovative and maybe a little bit daring I was I'm wondering if it's you quite felt radical. a little nervous about that I was nervous and I thought oh my goodness how are we going to train the actors to make this work and what are we going to do about it an audience that is trained to do a you know a classic talk back and give their opinions about the play instead of really dig deep into their hearts and souls and share and and have a real talking right. circle and Gloria said don't worry it always takes care of itself it's magic and she's right. Yeah. It always does. Well, I only went to one performance, but coincidentally, I work with somebody who's an usher at McCarter, and I uh -huh. asked her about previous um, uh, talking circles. And then I had, had uh, a day with a friend in New York who saw the production in New York, mm -hmm. and she described it there. And it always works. Everybody it always says it works. works. But one thing that struck me, and I think it struck these two, perhaps you can tell us if they are an accurate um, reporters of, of it all. Very few men speak up in the talking circles. First off, the audience, of course, is predominantly women. I shouldn't say of course, because that's not necessarily the case. Right. But we don't want that, but it does turn out that way. What I'm finding wonderful is there are more men here in Princeton coming out hmm. than they did in New York. But often the men do speak. Mm -hmm. oh, good. And now two out of three uh, two people two two men spoke um in the last three performances we've only had three public performances so far mm -hmm. and um and they spoke in new york and often they feel very moved to be there mm -hmm. to learn things they thought they knew but maybe didn't know mm -hmm completely. Mm -hmm. They often give tributes to their wives and daughters, which is really That's interesting. Really interesting. Um, and some will say, one man actually got up and testified in a way that was quite startling in New York, where he said, I realize I have a lot to atone for. Well, that is really interesting. Yeah. And that now, when I hear this stuff in the locker room or out drinking with my buddies, I'm not going to allow it. Mm-hmm. And that made me really happy. Right, I bet. I mean, another thing that struck me as I was watching it, because Gloria Steinem does, I, my life tracks with Gloria Steinem as, it, as your, yes, your own mine. does. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was much I knew, much of the history I knew. There was a few pieces that I didn't know, and I want to talk about those in a second. Mm -hmm. But 
the 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 cringifying moments that you managed to capture still managed to 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 make me cringe. I mean, there were a couple like Gatelise, like the taxi ride the with Gatelise and Salt Bella. Absolutely, maybe you can tell that story. And then the other one I want to get to is I think it was Harry Reasoner giving his prognostications about how Ms. Magazine would fare. But yes. but which of these resonated with you most as a person, as uh, on a personal level? Because again, your own. Uh, professional trajectory was unfolding right alongside Gloria Steinem's. It's so hard for me to pick one in particular. It's interesting that you bring up the cab because I don't know anyone of our generation who hasn't gone through it. And what this is, is um, it's 1963 and Gloria is covering um, uh, the campaign. uh, I mean, sorry. Yeah, 1963 and covering the campaign of Bobby Kennedy Mm -hmm. for senator. And... um, She's taking a cab ride with Gay Talese, the social critic, and the great novelist Saul Bellow, and they're also covering the campaign, and they're sitting in the cab, and their guys are saying, oh, God, you know, Bobby Kennedy's so hard to interview. Mm-hmm. Well, Gloria had a fabulous interview with him, yeah. and she said, well, in my experience, the thing you have to do is bring someone along with you that Bobby has to convince, someone who disagrees with him, mm-hmm. and then you get great quotes. Otherwise, he won't talk. Uh-huh. And they went, oh, Yeah. And then Talise um, takes Bellow's arm right across her. Mm-hmm. She's sitting in the middle between them and says, you know how every year a girl comes to New York and pretends to be a writer? Mm-hmm. A well, pretty girl. A pretty girl comes to New York and pretends to be a writer. Well, this, uh, that well, Gloria Steinem is this year's pretty girl. Yeah. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> they leave and she laughs with them and then she sits there and she says, well, maybe they felt that was a compliment calling me the pretty girl. And then she realizes how furious she is and how mad she is at herself that she didn't say something, that she didn't get out of the cab and slam the door, that yeah. she didn't tell them off. Yeah. But how many of us have done that? We sit there and we take it. Yeah. And we think, oh, it's me. Oh, they're trying to be nice and make excuses yeah. for the guys for something really awful. Yeah. Do you know, I wonder, um, there's a lot of talk. Th- th- this play has been described as a history of, of, of second wave feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you get a lot of feedback from third wave feminists and fourth wave feminists. If you, if you, yes. h- how do the different generations of, of women in the first instance uh, uh, react to the play? Well, what's wonderful is we correct a few things in the play because mm-hmm. a lot of third wave and fourth wave feminists feel that it was an all-white suburban movement, and right. it was not. Right. Um, in fact, Betty Friedan was more that, but Gloria mm-hmm. absolutely wasn't. And what we have in the play is that she says she learned feminism from black women. Yes, and she na- and we named and them. And we you name them. them and we do a tribute to them. And I was very struck because I mentioned a minute ago I thought I knew most of the history, but there were a few things that I didn't know. And I have to be absolutely honest, I obviously knew – um, Shirley Chisholm and Alice Walker, but uh, many of the other women in the play that, that you mentioned in the play, I did not know at all. They're Absolutely. not household names. They are not household names. And you understand because we put in an example of how the media absolutely made a distinction between the civil rights movement and the feminist movement. And if you were a black feminist, they you did not get press. Right. Um, and so it was a distortion of the movement, and it's a distortion that we're still living with to this day. Yeah. And it is something that was used to help break the movement and divide the movement. Um, so we're trying to correct the record. And mm-hmm. in fact, 
um, Wikipedia did not have any black women in their second wave feminist no um, citation on Wikipedia and after the play and there were people who wrote in and 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 and, and it has changed. Yeah, it corrected it. It edited, has been yeah. corrected. Yes, and that makes me extremely happy again. And and so is this something that resonates with us uh, the question the, the generational the younger generation of women that are are seeing the play? Yes, and they remark on it. Mm-hmm. Um, as do the you know m- most everyone remarks on it, but it mm-hmm. goes down the generation and what we're finding, or we found in New York, and of course, you know, six months, eight shows a week—that's a lot of that's yeah. a lot of talking circles. What we found were a lot of women of color saying thank you. Um, it was intergenerational. Many of them were saying thank you to their mothers mm-hmm. and their grandmothers for all the work that they did before them and that they had taken for mm-hmm. granted, mm-hmm. and now see that they may lose mm-hmm. that the entitlement. So many. Um, third generation, uh, third wave and fourth wave uh, women are feeling. Um, one of the things that Gloria blesses Trump for is that it's woken people up. Yes. I was and going then, to ask you mm-hmm. th- another question. I was going to actually came up in the talking circle the other night, which mm-hmm. was Friday night. Somebody said, um, do you feel that we are preaching to the choir here? And I believe you actually answered that. And you said the, 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 the choir needs, <laughs> yes. needs support and needs encouragement more than ever. And yes. I, so I, it made me wonder um, what other thoughts you might have on that. What, 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 how can this play help um, affect the present um, well, politics. what Gloria and I are hoping is that given the malaise that so many, especially second wave feminists are feeling, oh, my God, why why am I still marching? Women will say, I've been doing, you know, organizing and I've been marching for 50 years and I don't see any change. And the point is she's saying there has been change. And it's something that you have to know if you believe in transformational justice and justice for all people. You have to work on it every day Mm -hmm. because the other side is. And you can lose ground, but not only should we know that you have gained ground, but we are the majority. We will win, but only if we all work hard. And so... We have to re-energize yeah. ourselves, and sometimes, you know, you know, you look at the Houston uh, Conference on Women, and you look at the 1977, Latinx, I think. yeah, 1977, the Latinx woman who's saying we must make sure that Congress keeps, you know, um, mothers with their children, mm. and you think, oh my God, we haven't come anywhere. Well, yes and no. Mm-hmm. There was change, then the 80s came, and we're in another cycle. And if you look carefully at the collage of the 80s, you'll see the Nixon poster that his slogan was, Make America Great Again, right? It goes in cycles, and we're in a backlash. Yeah, and it was just, to me, it's very, very interesting to see a woman writing the history of the women's movement, writing the creative history of the women's movement, or the artistic history. Um, which is kind of um, enshrining uh, Gloria in the pantheon of American political figures. And I think there's something, um, um, I don't know, what's the word, righteous about that? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That's lovely. (laughs) We were talking a second ago about the reintroduction or the the reminding of African-American women as being at the forefront of the the women's movement. And there's a word for that that people are using now, intersectionality. People are talking about how oppressive structures for one group reinforce oppressive, oppressive structures 
pressures for the other. And it occurred to me as I was thinking through this that this is actually – though the word is, is, is a little bit more academic than I think uh, you would have ever used. This has motivated your creative career all through your life, I That's believe. right. That's right. How did that start? What, what, where, where did you get that impulse? Well, I am a very blessed person in that I, um, my father was a great American historian, uh, and his uh, specialty was in immigrant studies, so I always knew about the diversity of America. And his best friend was John Hope Franklin, uh-huh. who was the pioneer of African-American studies. Uh-huh. So we were like one family. And so when we came together on at dinners, for example, that's what we talked about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never could look at the history of America without the history of black people. And you were in Hyde Park, south side uh, of Chicago yeah, at this yeah, time. Yeah. And we're talking about the 60s and so on. Exactly. Um, very heady time. Very heady time. And I got, uh, you know, talk about woke. Um, I really, I came from Northampton, Massachusetts. It was a very nice liberal place. And my mm-hmm. father believed in the education of women, and I thought women could do whatever they wanted to do. And then I came to Hyde Park, and I looked at what was really going on in the civil rights movement. Yeah. But I also knew it early on because John Hope was also often at our home in, in um, Northampton, and we saw him in England and in Brooklyn, and then he brought my father to U of C. And by the time he brought my father to U of C, I had become radicalized. Mm-hmm. So... It was a it was a heady time. I mean, we were all together as a family when Martin Luther King was killed, for example. Mm-hmm. So I was at a table with John Hope Franklin, Aurelia Franklin, John Whittington Franklin, my parents, and what did we do? We talked about it. Yeah. Deeply yeah. talked about it. So to me, there was no way to tell the story of America without the history of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father was an early, early feminist. And it was impossible to tell the story of America without the story of black people. So did you decide to be a playwright who was going to tell these stories? Or did you, did you decide to, 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 to try and affect change in society through being a playwright? Was, was there any um, cause It's interesting you asked that question because it was in high school when I remember the time when I was doing a play and it was an anti-Vietnam play and everyone wanted to not do the play that night and go down to the loop and march against the war. And I remember thinking I thought it was more important to put on the play than to be one person in that march. Interesting. Also, as a Jewish woman whose my mother's entire family except her mother was wiped out in the Holocaust, I have a gut terror of mob mentality. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when I'm in a march, though, it feels as the word used was righteous and mm-hmm. right, and I have done a lot of marching. I'm always quelling a terror. Mm-hmm. I don't like mob think. Mm-hmm. So um, it became clear to me that you could affect change in people discussing things on a deep level through having discussion after a play that had great power. Mm-hmm. And once I woke up to that, there was sort of no going back. So it's interesting. I might end up doing, you know, plays by Chekhov, Ibsen, and, and uh, Shakespeare when I'm directing yeah. or new plays. But when I'm writing, I'm often doing radical break-form theater that starts um, with those who have been witnesses. Mm-hmm. To the event, and you've re- you've mentioned already having our say, 
uh, yes, which was which is really you know about it's two African American sisters, both over a hundred years old, and their family was a storytelling family, and that family goes all the way back to memories of slavery because of that. So I told the history of the civil rights movement and the history of black people in this country through having tea with these two ancient women. Mm -hmm. And that's why Gloria asked me, because she said, you can tell the story of the women's movement through my story, Mm because she'd seen me do it with having our say. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, those women grew up in Raleigh. So I went down to North Carolina to see John Hope. He was teaching at Duke. And he took me to, he knew the Delaney sisters, and he knew their brothers, and he took me to the college where they grew up, St. Ox. so it all just sort of came together full circle, you know. And it, yeah. and Sean Hope said, no, no, you all can talk to Emily. She's my daughter. <laughs> oh, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That play was put on um, very early in your tenure here at McCarter, I think, yeah, or in the first couple 95. of years. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if you can take us back to that time because – because the first year was tricky, right? The first year. Ooh, that's a nice way of putting it. More than tricky. There was a, a headline, you know, at one point saying this woman should be run out of town on a rail. Um, yeah, there was a lot of pushback on the kind of work that I was doing. I think when I put on my um, musical Betsy Brown, written by Antozaki Shange and myself and by Keita Carroll, um, it was the first time um, a play by an African-American, uh, certainly an African-American woman, but that goes without saying, an African-American uh, had been on the stage. Mm-hmm. We brought in a whole bunch of people from Trenton mm-hmm. um, and the surrounding areas. A lot of African-American people were at McCarter for the first time in their lives. Right. A lot of people didn't like it. So that was going on. I was also um, very outspoken politically. I'd just been in South Africa with Winnie Mandela, and I had been working with the ANC and writing a miniseries on her. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I arrived, I was quite outspoken, Uh uh, both in terms of um, rights of uh, people of color, but also of women. Mm -hmm. What I liked was that I had a board that knew this. It's why they chose me presumably yeah yeah i mean it made no no no, no sense otherwise <laughs> yeah so it would make no sense otherwise and um the people who came first to welcome me were cornell west tony morrison joyce carol oates and they said welcome to princeton and i felt i'd come home yeah wonderful. so it was a very controversial first year also the theater was in very bad shape financially mm. much worse than i had been led to believe and much less than I think, the, uh, much worse than the board themselves knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a lot to deal with. And then the Arts Council cut their support of all arts. I remember in this very much like a 50% cut, 50% right? 50% cut. And this was cut. the state of New Jersey's Arts Council. Yeah. 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 So it was quite a welcome to New Jersey. Yeah. Um, and so it, it was a tricky first year. Um, and so I really credit the board. Um, the staff uh, and uh, the community for fighting back against uh, the conservative forces that wanted to get rid of me. Yeah, and and I'm struck. I read something that you'd said once about, um, you've probably said it many times, but that your theory was that theater was about building community. Yes. And uh, coincidentally, uh, I was a graduate student here right about the time you arrived. Oh, my. And I've been gone for the last 30 years and just came back. Oh. And Princeton has changed yes, a lot. And I'm curious, 
what role you think McCarter Theater might have played in helping to change the community? Well, that's such an interesting question because, you know, when you stay in place, it's sort of like, you know, the the bad side of that is when you're the frog in the water that's starting to boil, right? Um, So I was pleased when I first arrived, I remember, and even my mother remarked on it, she said, oh, sweetheart, where have you moved to? (laughs) She had... She 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 felt you know living in Hyde Park. She was looking around. She couldn't see any black people. She couldn't see any people of color. Around. I remember that myself. It was a creepy feeling. And when I got here, I thought, oh, I don't know if I can stay very long. And then it got to my question: Is is, is Princeton changing, or am I? Are the only people of color at the theater, or am it, is it my imagination that there are more? There's more diversity in the town, and I found more and more there was more diversity in the town. And I, you know, one of my favorite stories is when having our say opened in 1995. I got a letter from a woman in Princeton who said, "Dear Miss Mann, thank you. For the first time in my life, I have feel I have met." And she used the term Negro women Mm -hmm. who could not only be friends of mine, but part of my family. I have only known Negroes who worked for me. Yikes. This was some number. 1995, a member of the Princeton community. Interesting. And you think, boy, the power of theater. Right? Mm-hmm. She felt she had met the Delaney sisters and that she could actually have a friend or a family member who was a person of color. Now, that was huge for her. And I thought, well, I, I admire her honesty and the courage to say it yeah. and to tell me that. But I began to see, you know, what I had felt when I first moved here was real. It, so it was a really conservative place with roots deep in segregation. Mm-hmm. It was a segregated town until very late. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you feel it. And actually, in the much earlier years, my mother, when my father was asked if he would like to come teach at Princeton, she wouldn't live here as a Jew. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. She felt it was a very anti-Semitic place. Mm-hmm. Well, when I arrived here, Harold Shapiro was president. Uh, Joan Gerges was uh, dean. Nancy Malkiel, who was my father's best student at well, she was Nancy Weiss, mm-hmm. uh, my father's best student at Smith, um, was encouraging me to come, and and she was you know a, a very well um, loved person on faculty and 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 a dean. And she was the kickoff interview for this podcast series. By oh, the by. she <laughs> really bless her. Um, so you know, I felt there was a there, that progress was being made. And then, of course, with Cornell and Tony, and yeah. you know th- that was a, an amazing uh, welcome. But um, I felt that there was going to be change, and I was going to be part of that change. And in fact, you know, so many people say we were a huge part of that change because we did so many plays about um, and by women and people of color. That certainly, you know, the stories of people that were different from much of the audience watching it were were revealed. And, you know, some friends joked that, you know, we helped get Obama elected in in (laughs) Princeton. I wouldn't take credit for that. But um, I loved being part of the wave of change. Well, it certainly makes Princeton a a much, the the theater makes Princeton a much richer place. And uh, coming back, I am very grateful that it's here. Great. I hate to say that we should probably wrap up. It's been um, wonderful talking to you. We could go on all day, but I do have to ask. Yes. Um, 
what's next for you? I don't really believe you're retiring. I believe you're going to stop doing this. You're what? absolutely right. <laughs> I am going to continue to make trouble. <laughs> um, I will be now stepping away from administering the theater, but I will continue to write and direct. I have uh, a new play that I hope will be on Broadway in 2021. Having our say uh, looks as if it's going to be revived at the Apollo Theater oh, in great. Harlem to kick off the uh, 100th uh, anniversary of the Harlem Renaissance, which is a great oh, honor. Wonderful. Um, and we're looking to see Execution of Justice, one of my earlier plays on Broadway, um, I think is going to get revived also in the city. So it's a very exciting time. Okay. And I feel like I'm in some ways at the top of my game. And I, I want to have a third act. Great. Well, I'm sure you will. I'll look forward to it. Thank you so much. Emily Mann, uh, newly, well, not quite yet, but soon to be inducted into the Theatre Hall of Fame. Thank you very, very much for, for talking to thank me you, and Margaret. our listeners. And I want to say thank you to Danielle Alio, who's our producer, and Daniel Kearns, who's our audio engineer. And also, of course, to the listeners and ask you to come back for another interview with a fascinating woman from Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.